We've had a bit of a leak under our kitchen sink for a while, but it wasn't a really bad leak, so I just kind of ignored it. And sure enough, it went away. <laughs> no, uh, this last uh, Monday, I guess it was, I looked under the sink for a bag for the garbage, and there was a puddle on top of a box. And I thought, well, that's not right. So I looked under there, and I went, okay, I see where this is coming from. And so I, I knew I had to replace some of the pipe under there. But in my pre-repair planning and looking, I thought, I have done something wrong under here. I know you're shocked, especially those of you that are plumbers, to think that I wouldn't have plumbed that just right the first time. But you know, the reason that I knew I had done something wrong was because I watch Holmes Inspection on the cable TV. Mike Holmes is a guy who goes into homes that, are, that have some problems, and he goes through and he goes, no, this is wrong, this is wrong. Why did they ever, you know, and so on. Homes that have already been inspected by somebody, but they didn't catch things. And one of the things that I have learned under there is you're not supposed to have two P-traps under the sink. Only one. <laughs> not one from the disposal and another one from here. And they come together and they go around and they go out. And I think, now I know why my disposal runs slow. Because <laughs> I'm an idiot, that's why. <laughs> so I thought I have to take all those pipes off and replace it all. And, and it's almost a perfect repair. It'll only take one visit from the plumber, then it'll be perfect after that. But. You know, I have bought home repair books in the past, or if I'm going to work in the yard or whatever, I'll buy those books and I'll look and I'll try to read. And, but it's not nearly as good as having a live example. If somebody goes, now you see this and you see that and you do it this way and you do it that way. Those kind of examples really help you learn and grow in whatever you're trying to do. And the same thing is true in the Christian life. God has given us everything that we need to know for life and godliness right here. But he also gave, in the beginning, the apostles to be examples. And they were examples to people like Timothy. And Timothy was an example to other people. And right on down to today. Just as God has given us all the truth we need here, part of what he has given us in that truth is the need to find examples and to follow exemplary believers. And as we finish Philippians 3 today, we're going to understand what an exemplary believer looks like so we can know who we should be following. Philippians 3, starting in verse 15. Therefore, let us... As many as are mature have this mind. And if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal this to you. Nevertheless, to the degree we've already attained, let us walk by the same rule. Let us be of the same mind. Brethren, join in following my example. And note those who so walk as you have us for a pattern. For many walk, of whom I have told you often now, I tell you even weeping that they are enemies of the cross of Christ, whose end is destruction, whose God is their belly, whose glory is in their shame, who set their mind on earthly things. 
For our citizenship is in heaven, from which we also eagerly wait for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our, body, our lowly body, that it may be conformed to his glorious body, according to the working by which he is able even to subdue all things to himself. Therefore, my beloved and longed-for brethren, my joy and my crown, so stand fast in the Lord, beloved. As we think about what an exemplary believer is, the first thing we need to understand is this. An exemplary believer knows he isn't perfect. An exemplary believer knows he isn't perfect. In verse 15, when Paul says, as many of us as are mature, we should have this mind, he's referring back to verse 12. And in verse 12, and really this whole passage, this all of Philippians 3, what he's talking about is what it means to be a growing or maturing Christian. And part of what he says is, I realize that I can't work my way to heaven, so I have embraced Christ as Savior. And then from there, I have embraced Christ as Lord, and I am working to grow into being like Christ. And he says that's the normal path of the Christian life. We have to grow up into being like Christ. Nobody is perfect right out of the chute. Nobody gets to a place of being perfect or complete without sin. We're always all working and moving forward. And in verse 15, he says that is the attitude of maturity, or that is the attitude of perfection. The same word is translated perfect and mature, and it means to be brought into completion. There is a little difference in the way Paul uses the word. In verse 12, he says, he uses a verb in a tense that indicates a completed action, and he says, I'm not already perfected. But then in verse, uh, in verse 15, he uses the same word, and it's translated mature in the New King James, and he uses it as a noun. Here's, the, here's one kind of perfection he's talking about. It's in Ephesians 4, 11 through 13. And Jesus, he himself gave some to be apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers. For what? What is the job of those people? To equip the saints for the work of ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ. We could have read those verses today. What we're supposed to be doing here is learning how to serve one another and then doing it. Until, how long do we serve the Lord? Till we all come to the unity of the faith, of the knowledge of the Son of God, to a perfect man. What does that mean? To the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Ultimate perfection means to rise up to the level of being like Christ in character. We will never be divine, as in God's, but we will have the character of Christ in full. When will that happen? That will happen when we see him face to face. Between now and that time, we grow day by day by day. So the Apostle Paul in verse 12 says, I haven't reached that stage yet. But he does say in verse 15, there is a relative kind of maturity. In other words, I'm not a baby Christian but I'm not sinlessly perfect like Christ, but along the way I have grown up. And he says, if you are a mature Christian, you have this mindset which is, we're all still growing. None of us are perfect. In the beginning of the book of Revelation, there are challenges to seven different churches. 
and one of them had a false sense of perfection. To the angel of the church of the Laodiceans write, these things says the amen, the faithful and true, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God. I know your works, that you are neither cold nor hot. I could wish you were cold or hot, talking about spiritually cold or hot. So then, because you are lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will vomit you out of my mouth. Because you say, here was their spiritual problem. They said, I am rich, I have become wealthy, and here's the real problem. I have need of nothing. And you do not know that you are wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. And you know what's scary? This is written to a church. Is it possible for a church to come to a point where they say... We have arrived. Boy, if that ever happens, get on your knees and pray that God will convict us all of sin. And if it ever happens to you as an individual, you need to repent. The Apostle Paul, okay, think about this. The Apostle Paul said, I'm not there yet. The Apostle Paul said, I'm not rich, I'm not wealthy, I I have many needs. If you think you have arrived, you are arrogant. An exemplary believer is a humble person who is genuinely aware of their need to grow. Do you know there's an example of the Apostle Paul in this area? I mean, we see a lot of examples of him rising up to the occasion and being strong and courageous, but how about an example of him making a mistake? Then Paul, looking earnestly at the council, that would be the ruling council of Israel, he said, Men and brethren, I have lived in all good conscience before God until this day. And the high priest, Ananias, commanded those who stood by him to strike him on the mouth. Smack. That's pretty harsh. And look how Paul responds. Then Paul said to him, God will strike you, you whitewashed wall, for you sit to judge me according to the law, and do you command me to be struck contrary to the law? And those who stood by said, Do you revile God's high priest? And Paul said, I did not know, brethren, that he was the high priest, for it is written, You shall not speak evil of a ruler of your people. You understand, the Apostle Paul misspoke. And he said, I was wrong. That's an exemplary believer. There's no such thing as a believer who will not make mistakes. There is no such thing as a mature believer who will not make mistakes. But an exemplary, mature believer is one who said, you know, I was wrong right there. An exemplary believer knows he's not perfect. He knows she's, she knows she's not perfect. Number two, an exemplary believer doesn't go backward. Now, this is going to sound a little bit harsh, but you, you listen all the way through here. Philippians 3, verse 16. Nevertheless, to the degree we have already attained... Let us walk by that same rule. Let us be of the same mind. The Apostle Paul said, in our growth in Christ, 
we started out here. We were, we were babies in Christ. We just believed in Christ. And we took a step. And we moved forward. And we grew up. And we learned a little bit more. And now he's talking to the Philippians saying, you know what? We've come to this point. He said, he, to the degree we have attained, let us walk by the same rule. Okay? When you have a, a young child and the young child decides they're going to act like a baby. They're going to talk like a baby, or they're going to fling food or whatever. We will frequently say, grow up. Or even better, we'll say, act your age. That's what he's saying. He's saying, to the degree we have attained, let us walk by that same rule. He said, listen, Christian, you've made some progress. Don't go back. Now, what I'm saying today is, if there's going to be somebody who's an example to you, it can't be somebody who's gone back. I know that mature believers make mistakes, like we just talked about with Paul. They have to make things right. But if somebody who is supposedly a mature believer, and yet they've gone back, just because they were a mature believer does not mean they're exemplary now. An exemplary believer does not go back. Look at what Paul said to the Corinthians here in 1 Corinthians 3. I, brethren, I could not speak to you as to spiritual people, but I had to talk to you like those who are fleshly or carnal or to babes in Christ. I fed you with milk and not with solid food, for until now you were not able to receive it, and even now you're still not able... For you're still carnal or living in the flesh, for where there is envy, strife, and divisions among you, are you not carnal or fleshly and behaving like mere men? In this passage, he compares the difference between somebody who is born again, spiritual, and, and somebody who is born again, but living like the natural man, the fleshly man, the carnal man. He said, I should be able to talk to you like spiritual people, but I can't. I have to talk to you like babies in Christ or even like unbelievers because you're, you're living in sin. I understand that people have hard spots in their life. But when we sin, the answer is to confess, not to find excuses to stay in sin. You know the passage in 1 Corinthians 11 where he says, when you come to the Lord's table, you should be right with the Lord. And so some people I have known in the past have not taken communion because they're not right with the Lord. Is that the right answer? As though it's communion Sunday, but I'm not right with God, so the right thing to do would be to not take communion. Is that the right thing? Come on, class. What's the right thing to do? Confess your sin. That's right. Why in the world do you want to walk in sin? And what I'm trying to challenge you to today is, yes, we need to have examples. And the examples we should be following are those who say, I know I'm not perfect, but to the degree I have attained, I'm doing my best to live up to it. When I sin, I make it right. We might be tempted to look at a Christian who is successful in business 
and seek financial advice. And I would say no. If they're not walking with Christ, don't follow them no matter how successful they are in business. We might look at somebody who's been married a long time and seek marital advice from them, but if they are not living righteously, don't seek their input. And now some of you are thinking, well, Dave, that's going to make a pretty small pool from which to draw. That's right. And you'll be the better off for it. Because if the blind follows the blind, what did Jesus say will happen? They will both fall in the ditch. God wants us to follow exemplary believers, but he wants us to make sure that indeed they are exemplary. Number three, an exemplary believer demonstrates Christ-like character. That obviously goes without saying, but look at verse 17. Join in following my example and note those who walk as you have us for a pattern. If you have a, a, a concordance or a Bible search program, look at that word example and look how many times in the New Testament the Apostle Paul says, follow my example. This is not an isolated command. He says, you need to be following my lead. An exemplary believer demonstrates Christ-like character and others follow that character. When I was in high school, my uh, mom and dad pastored a church. My dad pastored a church in Darrington. We lived in Marysville. It was an hour drive. It was a very tiny church. And so I went to a church in Marysville that uh, we were familiar with and had some great fellowship with some young people there. And... Uh, that, the pastor at that church, I didn't realize it at the time, but the pastor over years went through different phases. And what I mean by that is uh, those of us in the ministry sometimes are subject to following fads. And there are ministry fads. You know, there's this guy who's great or this guy who's great, you know, supposedly. And so sometimes pastors kind of go, well, whatever he does, I'm going to do. The pastor was following a certain man who... who uh, who I came to understand later, taught a very authoritarian kind of dictatorship pastorate. And so he taught people very strictly to follow the lead no matter what. And uh, in time, a, a, man, a young man got saved at our church and uh, went off to that man's Bible school to learn to be a pastor. And uh, one summer I was home from college and this fellow came back and he preached. And I don't, have, I don't remember one thing he said except one thing. And uh, I can't do it anymore. Maybe I could with this right here, since it's not too high. But he uh, stood in the pulpit, and he swung his foot up on the pulpit, and he said, if godly men wear purple shoes, I'm going to wear purple shoes. And I thought, what in the world? What is that about? Well, I know now that what it meant was, if you're paying attention to that authoritarian pastor, you better do exactly what he says or you're going to be in trouble. That is not what it means to follow the example. That is not what it means. The Apostle Paul was not saying, do you see what color sandals I'm wearing? You should wear those exact color sandals. No. That is not what it means to follow the example. It means to follow the basic characteristics of Christ's likeness. And so I would share some of those with you as things to look for in an exemplary believer. What are the foundational principles of godliness that we look for when we're looking for an example? Well, the first one would be this. Is living for Christ a priority? 
In other words, when I look at this person, they might talk a good game, but as I look at their life, is living for Christ really a priority? Jesus said, he who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And he who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Now, I'm not promoting an idea in which you don't love your children. I, I, I hope if you ask my daughter if I love her, she would say, yes, he loves me sometimes, you know. I'm not as touchy-feely as some dads, I understand that. But I think she would understand that she grew up in a home where mom and dad loved her and so on. And yet we worked at putting a priority on Christ. And that's when you look at somebody and say, should I follow this person's example? You need to say, is, is living for Christ really a priority? Is that what I see in the actions of their life, in the dedications of their life? Or are they truly more dedicated to some other things? Number two, does she, and, and I've just sprinkled the pronouns back and forth here, instead of saying he or she on everyone, does she base her life on the word of God alone? But Jesus answered and said, this is when he's doing battle with the devil, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. Boy, if you want to know if somebody is worth following as an example what happens when you, what are the words that come out of their mouth when you ask for advice? Do they quote the scripture? You know, I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to embarrass you, Chet, but I'm going to say it anyway. One of the things that I love about Chet as an elder, when we're discussing stuff in there, in our meetings, it's just as likely as not that, that he's going to say, well, the scripture says this, the scripture says that, scripture says the other. He'll quote a proverb. He shames me because he's got some proverbs memorized, and I don't very many. I got that one about spanking your children memorized. <laughs> Does the word of God come out of people's mouth? It should. It should just be normal part of conversation. I mean, it shouldn't be some special thing. I mean, it, you know, I might be talking with somebody about the piano, and then we get into a discussion, and the next thing you know, we're sharing the scripture. And maybe the next thing we're talking about some other aspect of life, and then here's something else. And it should just be normal that the scripture comes out of people's mouth. Not because they're trying to quote the scripture all the time. It should just be your frame of reference. That's what a mature Christian is. That's what an exemplary Christian is. Number three, is he spiritually courageous? A lot of people are willing to live for the Lord, but maybe not when the going gets tough. I always think of David when I think of courage in the Old Testament. I love the way he faced Goliath. And he looked at him and he squared himself off and he said, Is there not a cause? And he, he just said, this guy, this guy is wrong, and I'm on the side of right, and I'm, gonna, I'm not only going to stand my ground, I'm going to run at him. I think that's the guy. And you know what happened when that whole incident got done? Jonathan looked at him and said, that's the guy I want to follow. Man, I can see why. I, I, I remember hearing a fellow speak, I, I won't share his name, but he's a godly man, pastored back in the East Coast, I heard him talk about trusting the Lord in different ways and how the Lord had provided. And I thought, man, if I was a young man, I would move to New York and I would go to your church just so I could be near you and learn from you. What an exemplary man. Spiritually courageous. Take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day. And having done all, to stand. 
Stand firm. Man. Number four. Has she dedicated her belongings to God? I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. When God says, give your body to him, I think it's his way of saying, give me everything you have. There's no dualism with God. There's no, you know, your mind is for God, but your body is not. No, it's an all or nothing deal. And one of the questions that we have to grapple with as we grow in Christ is, who owns my stuff? Who owns my stuff? Is it God's stuff or is it my stuff? And if it is God's stuff, we will use it for God as we have the ability to do. The last one, and I could have maybe listed more of these these baseline issues of Christianity, but I just tried to give you some examples. Is worship a normal part of his communication? Um, Hebrews 13 says, Therefore, let us continually offer the sacrifice of praise to God. If it's a strange thing to hear somebody say, Thank the Lord, praise the Lord, if that's a strange thing, then they haven't fully grasped how great God is and how much he has done for their life. A mature and maturing believer says, wow, look what God did here and look what God did there. I love, I love Marion's sharing in Sunday school. She says today, well, this is really a small thing. But she went on and shared how God answered a specific prayer in a specific area. God got the glory for that thing. She said, look what God did. That's the way we have to live. Look what God did. We could look at more of these traits, but I hope these will help help you to focus your observation to say, what is an exemplary believer? What does it mean to be a Christ follower? Nobody is going to be perfect, but are these baseline issues moving toward the Lord? That's what this verse is really saying to us. Remember those who rule over you, who've spoken the word of God to you, whose faith follow considering the outcome of their conduct. In other words, we look at, we look at, at their faith, at, at their belief in Christ, and what is coming out of their life, and we follow on that basis. If I were to come down here and, <clears throat> and stand and say, where am I going? Physically, if, if, if I'm about to walk somewhere, tell me where I'm going to go. Where do you think I'm going to go? Unaru? What? This way? Okay. Where do you think I'm going to go? Sideways? Where do you think I'm going to go, Marianne? What was that? I can't. McDonald's. Only, only for breakfast. The lunch. Breakfast is good. Here's a very simple thing. Uh, the word trajectory has to do with where something is headed. You know, if I, if I aim a gun that way and pull the trigger, you know the bullet's headed that way because you know there's only one possible way for it to go. But when I'm standing here, you do not know where I'm going. But <clears throat> if I'm over here and I'm going like this and I say, where do you think I'm going? You think I'm headed, I'm headed for cake. <laughs> See ya. 
Okay, the point is this. In that list of characteristics, excuse me, in that list of characteristics, as you look at the list, you can see where somebody is going. You go, you know, and I'm not suggesting that that's a complete list, but you start looking at things like that, and you go, eh, is God a priority in the use of his time and the use of her money? You know, is, is there praise coming out of their mouth? You're looking at all these things, and you go, I think they're walking to be like Christ. Similarly, you can look at some people and think they're not headed toward Christ. No matter what they claim, or no matter how long they have known the Lord, we need to look at people's trajectory. That's why the Apostle Paul, the Apostle Paul said in 1 Corinthians 11:1, 1, Imitate me as I imitate Christ. And so we look for those people who are imitating Christ. Number four, an exemplary believer avoids false Christianity. There's a very, a very hard explanation of what a false Christian is. You know, we get into some real word challenges when we talk about you know, a false Christian or a heretic or whatever, or an unbeliever. Um, what's obvious from this description is that Paul is talking about some people who at one time were at least claiming to be believers and were walking with the Philippian Christians or walking with Paul because Paul has to warn them about these folks. I mean, there's a sense in which today, if I were to say, you should be careful about all the wickedness in Hollywood, you'd go, well, duh, because you can see it, it's obvious. But what Paul is saying is, be careful of the wickedness which claims to be Christian, because it's much more dangerous. Look what he, he says here in verse 18. For many walk, of whom I told you often before, and now I tell you again, even weeping. He's sad about these people. He's not, he's not happy to condemn people. He's sad that they aren't walking with Christ. In fact, he calls them the enemies of the cross of Christ. And so I would just ask it this way. What does it mean to be an enemy of the cross of Christ? Well, first of all, the enemies of the cross of, make human effort a means to salvation. That's one of the big points that Paul makes in this whole passage is you cannot earn salvation. Galatians 2 says, if righteousness comes through the law, then Christ died in vain. We don't often think of it this way, but if it's possible to earn salvation, then we're saying the cross doesn't count, and therefore Christ doesn't count. And that makes you an enemy of the cross of Christ. And so if salvation is obtained in any part by works, then Christ's death was insufficient and if we know people who are clinging to that idea of earning salvation, we need to mark them as not being exemplary. We should not be going to people who are heretics and asking their advice about how to live the Christian life. Because they're enemies of the cross. Number two, enemies of the cross live for physical pleasure. Look at verse 19 whose end is destruction, whose God is their belly, whose glory is their shame, who set their mind on earthly things. Now, 
to set your mind on earthly things, first of all, he's not talking about things that are, sec, uh, that are sinful in and of themselves. For instance, food is what sustains us physically. It is not a sinful thing. Sexual activity between a husband and wife is a wonderful God-created thing. It's not sinful. The visual beauty that we see around us, when I drive down my hill on a clear morning and I see Mount Baker in all of its beauty, that's not an ungodly thing. But God says we're not supposed to have our mind set on the earthly things. We're not supposed to be living for the earthly things. He says, don't lay up for yourself a treasure on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven. A few years ago, maybe, maybe three or so years ago, I thought to myself, the retirement funds doesn't make much money. What I should do is divert more pay off the house sooner, because that's a sure investment. I refinanced my house two years ago, and we're about to do it again because we can save some money on interest. And the house is worth, mm, let's see, 10 or 15% less today than it was two years ago. The moth and the rust hasn't even come in, but the thieves have broken in and stolen from me. <laughs> God says, look, don't set your mind, your heart, your security, your, your, your anticipation of blessing. Don't focus that on the stuff of life because it will disappoint you. And here, what Paul says is, these people who are the enemies of the cross, they are just that. They are focused on the stuff of this life. Their God is their belly. I, I don't think he's saying that they were necessarily people who were overweight. I think he's saying they're focused on the, these rules of eating and, and foods and, and, and dietary laws. And, and then they're focused on the, the stuff of this life. A lot of talk about false teachers throughout the New Testament being focused on what they can get from people in terms of money. The enemies of the cross of Christ live for physical pleasure. Number three, the enemies of the cross are proud of sinful behavior. Look there in verse 19, whose glory is in their shame. Now he doesn't lay this out for us in real specifics to say this particular sin but we certainly understand that the broad concept is one of saying people are actually living in sin and somehow proud of that. One of the cases of that is in 1 Corinthians, the examples we have in the scripture is this. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and such immorality as is not even named among the Gentiles, that a man has his father's wife and you are proud and have not rather mourned. I don't know how. I really can't imagine how a church could be proud of sexual sin of any sort, especially of that sort. I don't know. I really can't give you, well, it could be like this or it could be like that. Uh, you know, the only thing that comes close is maybe they thought they were, they were cool and worldly because they understood how things work. 
I don't know. But they were proud of something they should have been ashamed of. And so if I would think about things that sometimes people get proud about, I would think of some things like this. It is a sin to be dishonest in business. It's not something to brag about. Wow, you should see the money we're making under the table. It is a sin to lie, even if you get away with it. It is a sin to cheat at school. You know, in the SAT test, the test you take to regulate some of your entrance to college, you know, they're going to start attaching the photo of the person who's taking the test now so that you can't pay some guy 3500 bucks to go take the test for you. Oh, yeah. People were making a living taking the SAT for people. It's a sin. It's not something to brag about and say, hey, you know what I got away with. It is a sin to have sex outside of marriage. It is not something to brag about some conquest or other. It is a sin to show your anger in harsh behavior. And when you hear professing Christians speak about sinful behavior in any way except godly sorrow, you need to mark that person as either a believer headed for discipline or an unbeliever. And for sure, you need to not be taking the example of such a person. The married football coach of the University of Arkansas was fired this week for hiring the woman he was having an affair with. He gave her a job, paid her a large sum of money. I heard a discussion about this on the radio, and the commentator was saying this, if you're going to cheat... Be a good cheater. In other words, be good at it. Don't have a cell phone where they can trace your calls. Get a, you know, and he was going on about this. I expect that from unbelievers. I do. Because they live for the stuff of this earth. Their mind is set on earthly things. But when believers or so-called believers start talking that way, you need to stay away. From such people because the ultimate end of those people is that they're going to hell he says their end is destruction Jesus said this he who is not with me is against me in other words there's no middle ground on this the word enemy is a very strong word but it's God's word and so we need to wake up and realize that if we're being influenced by someone who fits this description we are being influenced by an unbeliever. God says we have to be careful of that. An exemplary believer avoids false Christianity. And number five, an exemplary believer lives in the light of eternity. Look at verse 20. We get to some happier news here. For our citizenship is in heaven, from whom we also eagerly wait. He said, in contrast to those who have focused themselves on the earth, he said, our citizenship is in heaven. We're very proud of Raul for passing the citizenship test. And, and we all, most of us here know what it's like to be the citizen of this country. We have certain rights and privileges and so on. Paul's using that very concept of citizenship. The people in Philippi were actually citizens of Rome. 
It was a Roman colony. That gave them status as Roman citizens. And he said, look, folks, don't get focused on your earthly citizenship because that's not where we're really connected. We're connected to heaven. An exemplary believer lives in light of eternity. What does that mean? It means, number one, they're preparing to meet Jesus face to face. They're preparing to meet Jesus face to face. Beloved, now we are the children of God. It has not yet been revealed what we shall be, but we know that when he is revealed, we will be like him, for we will see him as he is. And everyone who has this hope lives in sin because he knows it doesn't matter between now and the time he gets to heaven. No. Everyone who has this hope purifies himself just as he is pure. Why? Because at any moment, you could wake up face to face with Jesus. When we are tempted to sin, one of the motives that should help us do right is the awareness that we are getting ready to meet Jesus face to face. Some of you were here when our missionary in Austria, John Wright, talked about being hit by a bus. He wrote a missionary prayer letter and he said, you can get hit by a bus and not even know it. Or a truck. He got hit by a truck. He got hit by a truck and thrown a hundred feet. And he came to in a ditch. And his physical body has never been the same since. But he, it, it was really a wake-up call for him. He said, I... I didn't see that coming. I didn't, nothing, just boom. Are you ready to meet Jesus? I knew a young man who claimed to be a Christian many, many years ago, and he died racing his car up the guide. Him and his brother were racing like this up the guide. Bam, boom. If he was a believer, he woke up in heaven after having essentially taken his own life. How would that be? Hi, Jesus. It would be like 1 Corinthians 3 says, some will be saved so as by fire. In other words, God's going to pull you in by the skin of your teeth. But how much better to be getting ready to meet Jesus? Would you want to embrace the Savior having just held stolen goods in your hand? Do you want to wake up from a bed of sexual sin and see the Savior standing beside you? Do you want to have just told a lie or a gossip or a whatever and the next conversation you have is with Jesus? Mature believers live with eternity in view which includes a face-to-face -face meeting with the Savior. You need to be hanging out with people who think like this. You need to be mentored by people who think like this. They're ready to meet Jesus. They're preparing to meet him face-to-face. -face, and they're anticipating physical comfort in heaven. In contrast to these false believers who are focused on the pleasures of this life, they're looking forward and saying, you know what, this life is full of aches and pains and physical challenges, but someday there's a day of perfection coming. When they're sick, it's not the end of the world or they're not the center of the world. They say, the Lord is going to deliver me someday and there is a joy through the difficulty. 
when the diagnosis is not good, the world doesn't fall apart because perfection is coming. When the muscles are sore and the back aches, they dream of heaven and a heavenly body not constrained by physical limits. The Apostle Paul said, our light affliction, this, this physical existence, is but for a moment. It's working for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. Well, we do not look at the things that are seen, but we look at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporary, but the things which are not seen are eternal. Well, lastly here, a mature believer is constant in the Lord. And I know that's a little awkward way to say that. I thought of several other words, but I think constant is the word I'd like to, I'd like to use for you today. When I was a teenager going to that church that I mentioned earlier, they built a, a new sanctuary. It was probably twice as long as this and little, had 18-foot walls. I remember that on the sidewall. And, and um, I had a summer job in the evening, and I'd go over there every, every day and work four or five hours with this one carpenter they hired. And uh, Wayne, would you come up here a minute? I want to demonstrate something. This carpenter they hired to kind of lead the project was a Scandinavian fellow, he, or a, a Norwegian fellow, and uh, he had been a skiing sharpshooter in the Norwegian army, and, and he was a carpenter, and he was 40 years old, and, and, and I was a you know, I was a 17-year-old punk, you know, and this guy's, oh, you know, and, and he would teach me lessons. He would say, Dave, let the hammer do the work, you know, and he'd show, show me how to swing a hammer, you know, which I did not know before then. But he had a game he loved to play, and the name of this game is not politically correct, so I will not mention it anymore, but it went like this. You go like this, and you put your foot together, get your foot together, and you go like this, and then you try to get each other off balance. And he loved to play that game. And he beat me every time because he was a strong man. And I was a punk kid. A mature believer is constant in the Lord. Our enemy and his world system are constantly trying to get us off balance. Ephesians 4.14 defines maturity this way that we should no longer be children tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine and the trickery of men and the cunning craftiness of deceitful plotting. But speaking the truth in love, we may grow up in all things into him who is the head Christ. The mature Christian takes their stance, walks their walk, and when the enemy pushes on them, they resist, they hold firm, they go forward. They aren't constantly beat around and beat down and giving up. Oh, oh, oh life is so hard. Look at Philippians 4.1. Stand fast in the Lord. Those are the people we need to follow. Now, in no way, in no way am I trying to criticize anybody on their walk with the Lord who has not risen to this level yet. I fully understand that we are all at different stages in our Christian walk. And I understand that people struggle. I've been a pastor for almost 35 years. And I haven't given up 
grabbing people by the hand saying, come on, let's go. And I don't disdain anybody who is, who is still trying to become a mature, exemplary believer. But the lesson today is this. When you're in this part of the walk, you've got to be watching someone who has worked through these things in the Lord and who is strong and stable, not perfect, and you've got to say, okay, that's what I've got to do. And when I have a difficulty doing it back here, I'm going to go ask that man, that woman. I'm going to say, help me understand this. Those are the people we need to follow because those who are constant in the Lord are what we need to become. When I was having physical therapy for my knee, I did all kinds of exercises that were new to me. You know, standing on one foot and stepping over things and all kinds of odd things that you don't normally do in an exercise regimen. And the therapist would say, okay, Dave, here's what we want you to do. And they would say, you know, do this or do this. And they would show me how to do it. Because if they'd have told me with words, I would have went, okay. But they showed me. And so then I imitated them. I said, okay, like this, and they go, well, not quite like that. Okay, got it. Okay, I got it. Now go like, and they would give me an exact pattern of what I needed to do, and so I could follow their example and be able to accomplish what I needed to accomplish. Friends, this is the normal way physical therapy is done, and it's the normal way you learn to do a job, and it's the normal way Christianity is supposed to happen. In our American society, we've gotten all wrapped up in individualism. And we think that because we have the legal right to the pursuit of happiness, as we would define it, according to the preamble to the Declaration, we think that means we're on our own. And God says, no, no, we're in this together. And we have got to work together and follow together and grow up together in Christ. Heavenly Father... Help us to see those people who are examples for us. No matter what stage we're at in our Christian walk, help us to be looking forward to see those people who have grown ahead of us. Help us to know who a good example is and help us to follow those examples and, and to be blessed by those examples as we follow in you. I pray in Christ's name, amen.